Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 51, originally recorded live on September 4, 2013. Rosh Hashanah marks a beginning of the Jewish New Year. This year, Rabbi Shalom explores several of the essential Jewish stories by looking at them from a non-traditional viewpoint. In this episode, we begin at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. Some say I'm the villain of the Garden of Eden. They say that I, the snake, tempted Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. They say that I broke Yahweh the God's commandment. They say I brought death into the world. They accuse me of corrupting humanity, and some even think I'm a stand-in for Satan. I'll tell you a secret. I, the snake, I am the most important character in the story. Without me, no drama, no excitement, no history, no story at all. Genesis chapter 1, six days of creation and Shabbat, a day of rest. Genesis chapter 2, animals and people, a few rules, voila, the end. You people owe me, the snake, everything. Sure, there was some death involved. Call it collateral damage. Were it not for me, all of you would still be running around naked and ignorant. Children in a garden tended by Big Daddy. Big Daddy who put you there and who kept you unlettered and unknowing, uninteresting, unreal. I knew you had potential. I knew you could be contenders. You could be somebody. (laughs) With knowledge, you people could map the stars. With knowledge, you could explore the planets beyond and the universe within. With knowledge, you could create beauty beyond words and words beyond measure. You humans could tame animal and atom. If only you could learn how to learn. You needed to know that you need to know. For that, you had to know good from evil. You needed the capacity to take responsibility. Big Daddy Yahweh may have created you, but I, the snake, I made you. I made you, you. I made you real. I made you realize who you are and whom you can become. Villain, try hero, says the snake. The scene, a grove of trees east of Eden. The time, the winter after the fall. The speakers, Eve and the serpent. The author, me. We think that written stories stay the same. Words on a page do not change. What Shakespeare meant is what we read, and the same for the Bible or the Babylonian King Hammurabi's Code of Laws. The reality is that stories change because everything around them changes. The readers, the context, our understanding of what the stories mean and not just what they say. Rabbinic literature called Midrash takes well-known characters and imagines what else they might have said 
or done or thought beyond the biblical text. Modern culture does the same thing all the time, creating sequels and prequels to characters we thought we knew. The witches of Oz were once friends. Anakin Skywalker was born on Tatooine. That changes everything. This High Holidays, I want to explore the power of storytelling and the power of story retelling. Our retellings reveal ourselves and our values. What our characters say says something about us. I've had an affinity for the Garden of Eden story since I was four years old and my sister Eve was born. <laughs> my parents, in their definitely finite wisdom, chose that name. Now, the family story is that when they were asked why they named their children Adam and Eve, they would say, well, if we're able, we'll name the next one Cain. <laughs> I still don't believe that, but I let it go a long time ago, mostly. Now, many of the narratives we will retell this High Holidays are myths, legends outside of real history. But we know that myths affect culture. Myths define characters. Myths express values. If we want to challenge values in the original story, if we want to challenge the story's traditional interpretations, then historical facts are one route. New interpretation, literary creativity are another. Listen to Eve, and you'll hear what I mean. Mother of life? That's how Genesis explains my name, Eve, Chava, from Chaim, life. Then why do they act like I'm the mother of death? One Talmudic rabbi, 1,500 years ago, had the chutzpah to blame me for bringing death into the world. Quote, why do women walk in front of the body in a funeral procession? Because they brought death into the world. Why were the rules of menstrual impurity given to Eve and to all women? Because she shed the blood of Adam. Why was she commanded to light Sabbath candles? Because she extinguished the light of Adam's soul. They finally give women something important to do, like lighting Shabbos candles, and they give it a terrible reason. Yes, I know I dodged responsibility for eating from that tree by blaming the snake, but I really got the short end of the stick. For centuries, rabbis have said that I, Eve, was the dupe, the dummy, the soft target, and therefore all women are easily fooled and not to be trusted with anything important like reading from the Torah or deciding Jewish law or even being a witness in a Jewish court. As the feminist Rachel Adler pointed out, Women are in the same Jewish legal category as children and slaves, except children can grow up and slaves can be freed. They make me cover my hair. They silence my singing voice. They make me walk behind them lest I lure them into sinful lust. Evidently, my lust is less serious than their lust, or maybe they already know what they look like from behind. They always go back to that moment when I ate that fruit, whatever fruit it was. You might think it was an apple, 
But the story simply says fruit. And at this point, who gives a fig? <laughs> they put women behind screens in synagogues. They Photoshop out women's images from pictures, like Hillary Clinton in the Situation Room. They demand advertising billboards be woman-free. Then try to make us sit in the back of Jerusalem buses and stop us from praying at the Western Wall. They always have lots of reasons, but all too often it comes back to where it all began, to me, Eve. I have a secret for you too, you open-minded Rosh Hashanah listeners. They're missing the most important part of the story, the real moment of truth. My punishment at the end is an echo of the crucial moment. The snake told me that eating from the tree would open our eyes. Eating from the tree would make us be like gods, knowing good from evil. No matter who wrote this story, they did get one thing right. They told one line of the story from my perspective. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband with her and he ate it too. That tree was good for food, very good. Is it any surprise that the oldest Jewish story has something to do with food? <laughs> and that tree was beautiful. Imagine a ripe piece of fruit still hanging on a tree. You moved a leaf or a branch and you found it, a brilliant flash of color amid the green and the brown. And then you felt it, and you picked that fruit for yourself, and you ate it right there. Now imagine being the first person to ever have a raspberry or an apple or a grape. What joy! What more justification did I need? I still had one more reason beyond taste and touch to eat that fruit. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Some religions celebrate human knowledge and wisdom as paths to truth. Read the Bible's Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Maimonides or Isaac Newton. Some religions are afraid of how that truth comes out. Will we see the man behind the curtain? Will we disagree with our parents, our grandparents, our priests, our rabbis? The snake was right. Primitive faith, that simple rule of do not eat, was not fully human. And at that point in the story, neither were we. You see, before Adam and I ate from that tree, before we knew anything, that's when we were dummies and dupes. Now our eyes are open. We were blind, but now can see. You're welcome. Rabbi Shalom again. I hope you can appreciate how the story of Eve and the snake is not just a myth how its images and messages and understandings have conspired to restrict Jewish women's participation in Jewish life. I understand my limitations. My new version, this revision of the first Jewish myth, will not replace the traditional story, even if we podcast it on the internet. Why tell a new version? Revisions ask new questions and propose new answers. They put us in dialogue with our tradition instead of either passively listening or walking away. 
As with Genesis, so with our Judaism, our family, we have not walked away. We have stayed for a conversation. There are times you do not like what your family or your government or your people are doing to others or to each other, times when your values and their values diverge. Gender segregation is a Jewish value, just not one of my Jewish values. And there are times that you disagree with your ancestors, that moment you realize that respecting yourself means admitting you think they were wrong. Tradition says when the Torah is removed from the ark, this is the Torah that Moses placed before the children of Israel from the mouth of God by the hand of Moses. But archaeology says something very different. Some ignore the disagreement and go along the way things have always been. Maybe they can't imagine anything different. Maybe they're afraid to lose what remains beautiful and valuable. Some choose to leave being Jewish. They lose a lot, but they have their integrity. We stay. We speak. We creatively celebrate both our inheritance and our integrity. In the Genesis myth, when Adam and Eve are caught, they blame everyone else. Adam is particularly evasive. It reminds me of one of my kids caught red-handed. The woman you gave to be with me, she did give it to me and I ate it. So what's the response? Well, you're to blame too. You gave her to me after all. And she did it and I just went along. Now Eve does the same, blaming the snake. But the snake says nothing. That is, until now. Why did I not speak? I didn't get a chance. He didn't ask me a blessed thing. Just went into punishments. Maybe it's because I'm so clever, he was afraid I might convince him otherwise. Others think it's because I'd already played my role in the story, just waiting for the credits. The truth is that there is a time to speak and a time to stay silent. What good would my defense have done? Let me put it another way. Every time Adam or Eve opened their mouths, they just dug the hole deeper. After all, Yava only asked Adam where he was. And Adam gave it all away by blabbing, I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? Uh, uh, she made me do it. And Eve, she tried to pin it on me. Why did I, the snake, not answer? Let me remind you of how I was punished. You people always focus on your own problems. Pain in childbirth, work for a living, you are dust, so to dust you return, crime your river. Here's what happened to me. Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above every animal of the field. You shall go on your belly and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. For offering knowledge, for making humanity human, I am cursed above all others, the lowest of the low. The woman, my partner in enlightenment, now hates me, as do most of you. Does anyone have a pet snake at home? Anyone? I held my forked tongue for many reasons. 
It would have done no good, and it's hard to speak with a mouthful of dust. But the most important reason I stayed silent was because I realized something had just happened to make humanity even more human, even beyond the hunger for knowledge that I gave them. Yes, knowing good from evil was a big step, and so was discovering the freedom to make choices, even the choice to disobey. What really made humanity human was responsibility. This was the first example of people being made to take responsibility, even if Adam and Eve didn't take it themselves by standing up for what they did. It would not have been a favor to humanity to just start over or to let things go on without any consequences. If there are no consequences, there are no ethics, no good and evil to know. Take it from a snake. To be fully human, you need all three, knowledge, freedom, and responsibility. Map that out however you want in your politics, your religions, your cultures, your reality shows. Can you imagine being fully human, your own person, without knowledge or freedom or responsibility? You needed me, but even more important, you needed to do it yourself, to learn to enforce responsibility on yourself and to live with the consequences yourself. I gave you a push, and you've pushed each other ever since. Rabbi Shalom again. You, I could have presented this message very simply in philosophical language. The key to full human dignity is knowledge, freedom, and responsibility. I could have pretended that these message were, messages were intended in the original story all the time, planted by the original author as a secret message to modern Jews that somehow hid there through the centuries of traditional interpretation, just waiting for me to find them. Instead, I wanted us to explore the story and the human experience and our Jewish connections and our values in the key of Genesis. Consider it a jazz riff, a rhapsody on a theme by the authors of Eden. The last movement, the last word, is all about Eve. Four years ago, I read this poem by Marge Piercy on Rosh Hashanah, but tonight it will mean something different to those who heard it then and remember it. Everything we have learned, imagined, experienced, comes to bear when we read the story again and again and again. The poem is entitled, Applesauce for Eve. Those old daddies cursed you and us in you, damned for your curiosity, for your sin was wanting knowledge to try, to taste, to take into the body, into the brain, and to turn each thing, each sign, each factoid, round and round as new facets glint in white fractures into colors and the image breaks into crystal fragments that pierce the nerves while the brain casts the chips into patterns. Each experiment sticks a finger deep in the pie, dares existence, blows a horn in the ear of belief, lets the nasty and difficult brats of real questions into the still air of the desiccated parlor of stasis. What we all know to be true, constant, melts like frost landscapes on a window in a jet of steam. How many last words in how many languages would translate into, but what happens if I, and whoops? We see Adam wagging his tail, good dog, good dog, 
while you and the snake shimmy up that tree, lab partners in a dance of will and hunger that thirst not of the flesh but of the brain. Men always think women are wanting sex, snake, when it's the world she's after. Then birth trauma for that first conceived kid of the ego. I think, therefore I am. I kick the tree. Who am I? Why am I going to die, die, die? You are indeed the mother of invention, the first scientist. Your name means life, finite, dynamic, swimming against the current of time, tasting, testing, eating knowledge like any other nutrient. We are all the children of your bright hunger. We are all the products of that first experiment. For if death were the worm in that apple, the seeds were freedom and the flowering of choice. Eve concludes, I know this is not news to you humanistic Jews, but none of this ever happened. I did not exist, neither did the snake nor the Garden of Eden. Origin stories are not history, no matter how strongly people believe them. The earth is not 5,774 years old, even if some people think so. But my story happens every time you read it or retell it. And no one has ever heard this version before. Tonight it was heard 300 different ways by 300 different minds. And even if it is heard again, it will be different because you, the listener, the partner in cultural dialogue, you will be different. Go back to the beginning. Read it again and see for yourself. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.